Welcome to A Drink with a Friend. I'm Seth Haynes. And I'm Tish Oxenreiter. Tish, what yeah. in the world are you drinking today? Well, I ran to the fridge and did I have I told you that Kyle makes kombucha? Like this is his side No. Hobby? He makes all sorts no. of kombucha. Yeah. And so I'll just go to the fridge and he's got like six bottles. It looks like a mad scientist kind of situation in our fridge and, and our kitchen sometimes. So I pulled out this bottle of strawberry cucumber kombucha and it's very good. So good job, Kyle. Huh. That's huh. what I'm drinking. How many ho- side hobbies does he have? He is a man. He's like, um, what do you call those guys? Like Leonardo da Vinci. Polymath. A, yeah. Polymath, but also like a Renaissance man, you know, whatever you call it. Oh, a Renaissance. Yes. Indeed. Yeah. He just, he's, yeah, he has a man of many talents. Yeah. He makes things with his hands. Yeah. He yeah. does amazing things with photography, or at least he used to when he cared about mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. He does amazing things with drinks, evidently. He does. He's very good he at all. He can run a business like no it's, other. It's kind of annoying how talented he is. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Anyway. What we're saying right. is, uh, Kyle, we love you and we hate you all at the same time. <laughs> right. Uh, yeah. Those. Yes. That's mm-hmm. right. All right. What are you drinking, Seth? Uh, I am drinking. Uh, we've talked about this. It makes me so angry, but I'm still drinking it. You hear that? <laughs> that is water. I'm going to crack the lid. Mm. I hope you heard that too. I'm yeah, drinking Ozarka water. Mm. Which is from Texas. Which is, and I quote, do you want to say it? Oh, I don't remember. What is it? Proudly Texan? Proudly Texan. Yeah, everything's proudly Texan here. So It's mm. ridiculous. Ozarka. So <clears throat> Ozarka, though. The name there is Ozark. I know. Which is Missouri we- and Arkansas. We like to co-opt everything and be kind of obnoxious about being Texan. So my apologies to everybody in our general vicinity. It's yeah, not me. So Ozarka, if you're listening, and I hope you are, <laughs> although I am not uh, wildly narcissistic enough to believe that you are, right. um, A, your brand makes no sense. And B, if you're going to be proudly Texan, don't give me 16.9 fluid ounces. Give me like 169 fluid <laughs> ounces. <laughs> Because that's Texan. You, you know what I'm saying? Why don't you find a local Arkansas-made water situation? Mm. They, there isn't one? I would love to do that. No, there is one. There's There are several, and they're very, very good. Yeah. The problem is that I'm recording this episode at my office. Oh, right. And my office purchases bottled water yeah. um, without my recommendation. <laughs> um, and I forgot my, my uh, you know, carry-along water bottle today in which yeah, I would gotcha. put water fountain water in. So that's that's the issue. Gotcha. All right. Ooh, something's going on out your window. Yeah, I'm really sorry. So uh, that's the other thing. So for the listeners to know, I would like to I like to provide sound effects so that you really <laughs> get a full like immersive. It's an immersive experience, right? And yeah. so evidently um, somebody committed a crime out of my window and so the police yeah. just rolled by. I actually listened to a podcast episode. I forget which show. Uh, like a month ago, and they were talking about the increased crime in their city. They were in Baltimore, and literally, as they were doing that, sirens were in the background. Like it was like on oh, cue, amazing. and it sounded fake. And she was like, "I promise, I didn't just like push a button, you know, a sound effect button." That was really out my window. Anyway, well, I am currently listening to a podcast, um, and the name of the podcast is Lynchpin Conversation. So it's from this, it's this exercise, you know, CrossFit dude who runs mm-hmm. uh, this. Jim, I guess, called Lynchpin. He's a brilliant guy. But anyway, he provides an immersive experience because his kids are always interrupting him. And there's something about that to me that's like 
oddly comforting. I kind of like it. You know what? Yeah. I feel like I've seen a trend in podcasts going back to being a little more organic. Like when they first were sort of interrupty and off the cuff, it was because people didn't know how to edit. And then it became super produced. And there's still some value in that. But I see a maybe like post COVID full circle, where people are just hitting record and yeah. sending it out to the airwaves. And I kind of like that. So I'm all for yeah, kid interruptions. Too. Yeah, I if you too. hear, if you're, you hear a jingle in the back, it's because Jenny's in here and she wouldn't leave. So that's her scratching herself in the collar, like doing that thing. Anyway. Yeah. Then also all because right. we're super raw around here. We just keep it raw. Keep it real, man. That's right. Yeah, we are. We are not at all doing that because we are independent and small business here. Anyway, what's on your mind today, Seth? Well, I have been thinking a lot and I texted you about this because I think it's really important um, for both of us anyway, Not maybe not for anyone else in the world, but um, I've been thinking a lot about how fiction mm-hmm. helps us understand ourselves and the world better. Mm-hmm. Um, and not just as a writer, occasional writer of fiction, but also as someone who reads a lot of fiction and who loves fiction. It's like my first love is fiction. Right. Um, and we could even take it a step farther and say, although I don't think it's to the same extent, but I think we could even take it a step farther and say how, you know, a fiction on screen helps us understand ourselves better too. Um, oh, yeah. and so any form of fiction, mm-hmm. um, but particularly the written word. I think, mm-hmm. man, there's something about that that just is really intriguing to me lately. And I don't, I don't mm-hmm. really know why. And I, I don't really have super well-formed thoughts. So this yeah. is going to be one of those conversations where we talk ourselves into, uh, into a <laughs> conclusion. Um, I think there's something really very true about what you said. There's something about storytelling that is human wired. Like we've been telling stories to each other since the you know caveman days. So that's just hardwired in us. And why do we tell stories? Why, you know, why do we craft events into a story form and then share it? You know, why did Homer write the Odyssey? Why did we, you know, and, and to me, it, it just gets down to something very primitive in us. We learn through stories. I think Peter Kraft, uh, the philosophy professor who's written a bajillion books, I love how he thinks he says that, his favorite, I don't remember if he calls it nonfiction book, but he he says his favorite treatise on the human condition is Lord of the Rings. And he said it, the ah. reason is because it's, it's truer than most nonfiction, which yeah. is a wild thing to say about uh, entirely fantastical land. But I know what he means, right? I think you're, I think that's kind of what you're getting at a little, right? Yeah, it's a hundred percent what I'm getting at. I think so. So let me, let me lay a little bit of foundation because I think about this book all the time. Um, the first book that I remember like actually dragging me into the world of reading was Hemingway's mm-hmm. Old Man in the Sea. I remember you saying that one. And mm-hmm. I think I think I've talked about this before on the podcast, actually, how that was kind of the, the book that sort of was my my entree. And it's in it's mm-hmm. why I love Hemingway. I know dark, misogynistic, all the things about him. Um, yep. But I, but I, I've always loved him because I feel like he is so astute at dragging out the human condition. But I think about that book a lot, and I think about that book more now at forty-five. And I haven't read that. I've probably mm. read it three times. Yeah. The last time I read it, I was probably eighteen. So it's wow. been what I mean, twenty-seven years since I've read yeah. that book. Yeah. Um, but I think about it. A lot. Mm-hmm. And the reason I think about it a lot is because the older I get, the more I identify with the truth that like 
you just want to test yourself one more time. Like, do I still have it? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and as a person who is writing, it may be, do I still have a novel in me? Do I still have another book in me? Mm-hmm. Um, when I go exercise, do I still have another five miles in me? Uh, do I still have this weight in me to lift over my head? You know, and when you go back and you look at at the old man in the sea, like it just it just carries that feeling of the man who wants to go out one more time and just prove to the young men and to the people around him, to the world around him, that he's got it. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's such an innate human drive um, that I don't know that I understood when I was eighteen. You know, but now at forty five, I can look at that and I can say. Oh my gosh, Hemingway is actually saying something really astute here. Mm -hmm. Um, And it actually helps me understand myself in as much as it's like, oh yeah, this is the human drive for, you know, millennia leading up to me. And I'm really not so much different than that character. You know, I may have different religious beliefs. I may have, you know, different educational background. I may have different standard of living. But at the end of the day, we share that very primal need to go take on nature and prove ourselves one more time. Um, And so for me, that's like always been the book that sort of, I I think about when I think about what's true, Mm. like that is something that is very true and it's in me. And the first time I discovered that was in fiction. Right. I think you're getting at, I've said this before on the show, almost to where reader or listeners might roll their eyes, but there's a reason classics are classics. And, and basically it comes down to the fact that they are, they say something timeless. They say something timeless and universal. And so if you think about how many stories have been told from, I mean, I know there's older ones than this, like Epic of Gilgamesh. Well, no, Epic of Gilgamesh is roughly the oldest, but like since the Odyssey and on, think of how many millions of stories have been told. We don't have most of those. We have thousands, but we don't have the billions of stories. The ones that have lasted are the ones that say something timeless and universal. Like Mm -hmm. the reason we still read these things is because they're saying something true. And I think Mm -hmm. that's what, what Hemingway was getting at and why it stuck and resonated with you so much is because he's saying something true. I remember reading that book in 14 at 14. um, It was assigned to me in the ninth grade and I didn't like it because at first it just felt like this old guy going around trying to catch this fish. And it's like, (laughs) why don't you just go do something else? But this is my ignorant 14-year-old self who didn't really understand this whole thing is a metaphor. And also there's something really uh, noble and life-giving about sticking with something and, and staying with the effort of catching the fish. But I just didn't see it at the time. So yeah. you remind me again, and this is again, a thing I've said before, when I tell my students, I'm assigning this book, not because not for your 17 year old self, but for your 37 year old self. Yes. Because yes. I don't anticipate that you are going to appreciate all of, you know, the book that comes to my mind is Jane Eyre. You're not going to mm. totally appreciate it. But maybe in 20 years, you'll think back on this. And you'll either remember or you'll reread and you'll say like, Oh, that's why that book matters. Or that story matters, yeah. you know? Yeah. 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 You actually, you and Haley uh, do a great job of going back to books like Jane Eyre and saying, here's why it's important and relevant now and today. Yeah. And I always think that's so fascinating because um, I've never read Jane Eyre and uh, <laughs> you can all judge me and I don't want to read it either. So okay. probably not going to. Um, but. But you guys do such a great job of 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 reminding people over and over and over again, like here's why some of this this literature, particularly um, 
literature that's kind of always assigned to like 14 and 15 year old girls. Um, totally. Here's why it's particularly relevant to yeah. middle-aged and older women and middle-aged and older men. Like here's why it's still important. It still says something very, very true. That's right. You know, my, my Jane Eyre is your old man in the sea. I don't have much of a desire to yeah. read that book again. And so it's not at all implying everyone should read. Like there is a canon of great books that is – you know, always debated and always argued. It's not assumed that everyone should read all of these books. I mean, I would say there are a few that most people should read. Um, so to me, it's very much a like, here's the feast, here's the table of truth, beauty, and goodness. Take from here, at least before you take, like, I think C.S. Lewis talks about something like he re, I mean, this is funny that he would say this now, because we would consider him a classic. Um, he would read like three old books for every one new book. And Ooh. I'm not at all implying you should do that, but you should at least consider reading something old, older if you only read new stuff. And the reason is because I say something true. Um, yeah. These stories will tell you more about who you are and about what you believe than you realized. And at minimum, you walk away with a really entertaining story. At maximum, your life has changed because you suddenly realize yeah. like, oh my gosh, Jane Eyre is teaching me about what it means to be a woman who holds her ground, who st sticks with her convictions and her virtues, even when it costs everything, even when she's literally going to be homeless and wandering the wild moors and about to die of starvation because she would not bend, her, she would not compromise. What is like, am I that person? Am I willing to do the hard thing? I don't mm -hmm. think I am. Like, I think I would, I would say, okay, that's fine. You know, you do you, I do me. And I don't know, like she, that book. And then just the full circle of her, um, spoiler alert, I guess, but it's, <laughs> I don't know, uh, you know, coming again. To I mean, Rochester. listen, that book's been around a long time. So if you're, yeah. you don't have to give a spoiler alert for it. <laughs> right. Um, when she finally reunites with Rochester and he has witnessed his house burning down, everything crumbling, and he is now disfigured, which was his vanity at first, you know, his, his looks, his dashing good looks and his, anyway, and she's willing to marry him because he would not bend. To me, that just, they are the archetype of who we're supposed to be yeah. and, and what it looks like. I mean, she's got this famous quote about, like, if I don't stick to my my convictions that are God given, then I'm being less of me. Like I'm being mm -hmm. less of who I'm made to be. And that's probably the truth that we all need to like end our yeah. lives with, you know? Yeah. 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 So. And that sort of grittiness, I mean, it's, it's interesting. That's sort of like grittiness and stick to and principled nature. I mean, it, it's actually a very similar trait that you find uh, in the old man of the sea, right? And yeah. It, it may be yeah. for a different audience, but it's that same sort of, amazing life lesson that emerges in a different way and in a, obviously in a different context. But, um, but again, like I feel like um, the masters, particularly, you know, the, the, of, of literature that we would have studied in high school and, and college and whatever. Um, I feel like they really understood the power of archetypes. Um, mm, yeah. And when I say archetypes, I really mean like, not just the 12 union archetypes, although I do mean that, but I also mean like the archetypal stories, right? That the great mm -hmm. stories of struggle against, you know, the monster or against nature or love um, or, you know, what it means to build society or, or any of those like grand universal themes, like they just got those things and gave them to us in ways that were 
so informative of the human experience. They were not mm-hmm. desacralized. They were not dehumanized. They were actually very sacred and very human. Yeah. Um, and there's a piece of me that feels like we've, we've kind of lost a little bit of that in modern literature. Now that said, and this is what made me really start to think about this. Um, and it actually ties in with what you just said. I am 60 pages, 80 pages away from finishing Cloud Cuckoo Land. Oh, yeah. Um, which is Doors' most recent novel. Uh, yeah. If you haven't read it, you should read it. Right. Um, don't listen to it. Please don't listen to it. If you listen I have to been, it, and you, I'm so confused. It. Yeah, yes. you'll miss it. You, you, okay. You, this, is a, this is a must read. Um, so sorry for all of you who love Audi- Audible. Just like this is not sponsored by Audible, obviously, because I'm going to tell you to go buy the book mm-hmm. or get it at your public library. Um it's such an interesting book because what it is doing is taking uh, sort of disparate storylines, although there is connection there. So that's kind of a spoiler alert maybe, but there is some connection to storylines. But it's taking these sort of uh, ostensibly disparate storylines and connecting them through this grand universal story that's like comes from a lost manuscript. And that lost manuscript sort of speaks to everything that's happening in the story itself. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and it's just, I mean, to some degree, it's just doors like ode to fiction, like his yeah. love of books, you know, here's my, my ode to books. But what he's doing there is really important. And I, because I think what he's saying is the great stories repeat again mm-hmm. and again and again and again. And all I'm doing is repeating one of the great stories again and again and again. Mm. Um, And in fact, there are some themes in the book that sort of mirror themes in All the Light We Cannot See. Oh, really? Um, Yeah, which is really wonderful to me because, again, it's almost like he's he's winking and saying, like, these are the same Mm. stories. This story goes on and on and on and on, the story of human struggle, the story of love between individuals, uh, the story of the desacralization of nature through war. Like these things go on and on and on. And I'm just telling the same story. And it's a story I really, really, really want you to pay attention to. And I think the masters of, of literature, and he's no doubt one of the modern masters, oh, they, they, sure. they have the ability to do that. Yeah. Uh, my Every other year in one of my classes, we I, I set up a Socratic debate for my students where they have to argue whether or not every good story is a hero's journey, which I kind of roll my eyes somewhat at Joseph Campbell's monomyth, you know, because yeah. it feels a little typecast. It feels a little smothering. But by golly, if there's not hints of that idea in just about every story we read or, or love. That, you know, sticks around. And I think there's something to that. And it just makes me wonder, what is it that God has hardwired in us that connects with the idea of a man or, you know, a character in an ordinary world, in that ordinary world falls, and you have to cross the threshold and not look back and go through the tests with your allies and defeat enemies and come out on the other side changed like that's Mm -hmm. really and truly every story i mean tommy boy is that story (laughs) all the way to the odyssey so what is that i wonder like i don't know what do you do you see that do you have thoughts well i mean it's that's the that's the uh arc of genesis to revelation too right right 
man, man comes into the world, humankind comes in the world, humankind is changed by humankind's recklessness. Um, but ultimately through perseverance and battle and story after story after story, yada, 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 we come to revelation mm-hmm. where man is redeemed, mankind is redeemed yeah. and all the earth is redeemed. Yeah. Um, and I think this is a basic, my, my opinion, it's a basic, ba- basic hope of humanity. Listen, we live in a really shitty world. Pardon my French. Mm-hmm. Um, when you look around outside of our walls right now, we have mm-hmm. chaos. In fact, I was reading something, and I think we've talked about this in the last month too, in the catechism that said, what is the purpose of the church? The church is God's reaction to the chaos of the world. And the minute I read that, I was like, man, we live in such a chaotic world right now. It's like the most chaotic. And in fact, I talked to my mom about this and I was like, was it this bad in the 60s? And she just laughed and she's like, no, this is the most chaos I've ever seen. Uh-huh. And 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 I think when we look out at the chaos of the world – and we realize that that sort of fundamental egotistical self at 18 now has like come into the awakening that I've got no idea what's going on. I have no idea how to fix this. I'm not, I don't even know that I'm really even an agent of change in it. Um, things seem to be happening around me that I have no control over. Like the fundamental hope of mankind is that somehow – Everything is redeemed, and we come out on the backside victorious. And I don't know how that's going to work out, but yeah, um, but yeah. I hope that that happens. Yeah, I mean, we just we have to hold on to that thing that Jesus said to Peter about the gates of hell will not prevail the church. We're like, okay, yeah. I'm going to trust you. We're at the door. We're at the threshold of these gates of hell. It feels like funny. You should say that. My dad has said the same thing about the '60s versus now. Um, and my mom is like, I know every old person says this, but it really feels like the world's going to hell in a handbasket. I'm like, yeah, what's up with that? Now I will say, I definitely think things are as bad as they've ever been in my lifetime in probably anyone is alive's lifetime. But this is why when one studies history and one reads old books, you see that we have been here before. And that's probably another thing that we can learn about ourselves by reading is there are great men and women who have endured complete chaos, like insane chaos. I just took, because I'm a huge nerd for fun, I took a class called The Rise and Fall of the Roman Empire. It's mm-hmm. online for free. I can put a link to it. Um, and it was excellent. But man, learning about the fall of Rome and all of that <laughs> stuff, I'm like, okay, not only is this like a hint where everyone's like, or where I feel like everyone should just take this class and see like see what they did whenever they stopped listening to certain truths um you know we know of we we know of saint augustine's confessions when he is writing them he's talking about hearing the goths come in and sacking hippo you know yeah. it and and so there have been great men and women who lived through total unrest. So we know we're not alone in that sense. And I think that's something that's a timeless truth that reading can tell us too, is that great people have endured the same, if not maybe worse, even if it doesn't feel like it, you know? Yeah. There's a book that um, I picked up because uh, I read an article that that said I should read it, you know, like I think it was a New York times article back in 2016 Mm. called it can't happen here. It was a Sinclair Lewis book. Oh yeah. Um, Right. 
Yeah, and it's just a super interesting book about, you know, how democracy falls, right? And it's, mm-hmm. you know, there's this blustery doofus who becomes the president who nobody takes seriously, um, but then sort of paves the way for smarter men to come behind him and use his playbook to sort of destroy democracy. Um, and I, I realized that I I just like very much signaled my politics here, but it it is what it is. So whatever. Okay. Um, and why was Sinclair Lewis able to see that? Was he able to mm. see that because he was like projecting, you know, 80 years in the future and saying, you know, in 80 years, we're going to have this, you know, this is bound to happen. We're going to have this like sort of, you know, uh, incompetent, malevolent, you know, individual who who can't really become a fascist. Like that's not real. Um, but people are going to learn from him and they're going to become fascists after, after him. Like, no, it's because Sinclair, Sinclair Lewis was able to write that because this has happened over and over and over and over again. And it was just a warning, you know, yeah. to, uh, to people who live in democracy of saying like, Hey, we can lose, we can lose our democracy mm-hmm. and here's one way it can happen. And it's certainly not the only way it can happen. There are yeah. other ways to do it. Like, for instance, you know, elect a super progressive doofus. I mean, you can, you know, you elect a doofus, you get what you get, right? So, yeah. um, so there, I just tried to balance my politics. I'm not sure if it was successful, but well done. The point is, through great literature, like you yeah. really can tell these timeless stories that say something about the modern society because you're looking back and saying these are the things that have happened again and again and again and again. It's an archetypal story with archetypal characters that repeats and repeats and repeats. Mm -hmm. And in the words of Battlestar Galactica, (laughs) the wisdom, the sage wisdom of Battlestar Galactica, everything has happened before and it will happen again. Sure. If you've ever read, you know, not to keep digging into this dystopian hole, but I will dig us back out after this one last reference. Um, 1984 by George Orwell. My son, my 15-year-old, read it for fun because he's a huge mm. nerd like me a few weeks ago. <laughs> and he um, – not a few months ago, I should say. And ever since then, he has been just – like he will hear something on the news and he will just say things like, oh, we've always been at war with East Asia or mm-hmm. two plus two does equal five. Like he will make little comments of you know the big brother propaganda and how words are – whoever holds the, the language – holds ultimately the perception of truth. And that is exactly the world we're in right now. And he just instantly makes those connections, you know, through a work of fiction that, I mean, we hope it remains fiction. I have a shirt, actually. I should have worn it for our recording that says make uh, keep make 1984 fiction again. Um, (laughs) For that reason, I wear it. I wear it when I teach 1984. Um, It is a work of fiction, but what is it saying? You know, kind of that Battlestar Galactica quote, like, what are we learning here, you know, about the the world we live in? So I think I think great stories tell us both about who we are and what we believe and what the world is like, you yes. know? Okay, so, yes. so we're maybe not in that totalitarian regime, but are we kind of in some ways hinting at that sort of thing, yes. you know? Um, yes. Yeah, go ahead. No, I was going to say, and I think what's brilliant about the story that you just told is that your, your 15-year-old is coming to this wisdom through literature. Like he's looking at the world. I mean, this goes to prove the very point, right? The very point is that we learn a lot about the world in which we live through great works of fiction because he's looking at the world and saying, holy crap, this looks a lot like 
this piece that was written, you know, decades ago. And again, not because anybody looked into the future and saw like, this is definitely what it's going to be about. Although there is this futuristic and, and technological aspect to that book. Um, the authors of the great works of literature can say, well, I project it's going to be this way because it's the way it has always been. Yeah. Right. Right. And we, they will create entire worlds that, you know, back to Lord of the Rings, when Tolkien created it, he was hinting at both like the universal story and the world war two situation That's right. in which, in which they were fighting. And um, to quote, the the wise philosopher Samwise Gamgee, I think the the key phrase in that whole epic trilogy is there's some good in this world, Mr. Frodo, and it's worth fighting for. Yeah. And I think yeah. that's what good fiction reminds us of. So, you know, when you read the dystopian hellscape kind of stories, that's what you should walk away with feeling. And when you read the ones that really unpack the beauty of the world, you should walk away with feeling like this is still worth fighting for. So a, a mm. modern, like written in 2014, I think, um, book that resonates with me recently is uh, The Awakening of Miss Prim. And I can't, I can't pronounce the author's name, but she's Spanish. And so this book mm. has, was only recently translated into English. It's a phenomenal book. It's kind of written like a fairy tale, sort of, or more like a fable, I should say. But it's about this idyllic village where people do have made the conscious choice to prioritize beauty over productivity or efficiency in the modern world. And so they will hold book clubs where they talk about philosophy. They will, they leave their doors unlocked. They, I mean, all sorts of things, but she is talking about what it looks like to prioritize beauty over, over convenience, over just the modern modernization of the world. And it's very almost saccharine, sweet, idyllic, this village, to where if you read it with one lens, you can think, okay, that was a fun read, but oh my gosh, you know, get a grip on reality. But if you put on a different pair of glasses and see what she's really saying as this is mm. what we are all longing for. This is what our human hearts are made for. And it's not going to be found here on earth, but we can... We can create worlds where this is as good as it gets in fiction. And so to me, that is a story worth rereading. I'm planning to reread that every couple of years now because it did such, it really scratched the itch of what I've been looking for, you know, to kind of counterbalance the stories like 1984 that just paints everything as awful if we're not paying attention. Her book, The Awakening of Miss Prim, is maybe a painting of this is what the world can be like if we do pay attention, you know? Mm. That's good. Yeah. That's good. That's good. Well, I I don't know where our readers are going to fall in this discussion. I would love to actually hear some feedback yeah. somewhere, perhaps in comments yeah. where you post that when you post some Substack, sub mm -hmm. I would love for people to go and comment because I, I think there's a, um, I think for both of us, I think we tend to be more drawn to the dystopian realities or the dystopian novels that then yeah. say something about the reality of the world. But I think this is true, again, from everything from that um, to Old Man in the Sea to Jane Eyre. And I think that we should probably spend some time really asking what are the masters trying to teach us mm -hmm. through their fiction. And for those of us who are writers, I'm a writer, yep. you're a writer. Um, I dabble in fiction. You more than dabble in fiction. I think it's important for us to then look at our own work too and say, 
what are the universal truths we're trying to convey um, to our readers and to the people mm-hmm. who are reading. And does this, like, I'm never going to be Hemingway, right? I don't, I'm under no illusion that I'm going to be Evelyn Waugh. Um, but what ways can I harness the universal stories to share true, good, and beautiful things with my particular readership? And I think even further than that, like, if you're a dad or a mom listening to this, and you have young kids, chances are you're telling off the cuff stories to your kids, you know, at bedtime. We're all storytellers. Yeah. Yeah. We're all storytellers. And so what are the universal truths that we're all trying to convey through the stories that we tell, even if it's nonfiction, like what are the stories Mm -hmm. that we highlight? Um, Because again, stories are great communicators of, of universal and archetypal truths that get to the human need. That's right. And as a writer, I think I take comfort in the idea of that because I can get so in my head when I realize I am telling the same damn story that everyone's told to kind of rest easy about that, that there really is nothing new under the sun. And that's not necessarily a bad thing, you know, that, yeah, yeah, you're going to tell a story that repeats itself because every story has, you know, Hemingway probably at some point was writing and thinking, wait, hasn't so-and-so already said this? Yeah, probably. But he said it in his way. Like I remember back when I was in my earlier stages of book publishing and I heard someone say, yeah, someone's probably said this before, but we need to hear you say this. I think the same is true with stories. We need to hear your story about this timeless truth, your take on what it means to be human, what it means to live in a hard world and fight for beauty, you know? So we need all those stories. They need to be told. Mm A hundred percent. And I would also just caveat, I'm not sure that Hemingway ever actually asked that question just because <laughs> that is true. Yeah. Ego. He, he had a bit of an ego the size. Oh my <laughs> yeah. gosh. Can you imagine? <laughs> oh boy. Yeah. I don't know if I'd want to be friends with him as, as Mm-mm. amazing a writer he was. He seemed like a bit of a jerk. Yeah. Mm, uh, all right, Seth, what is something adding more beauty, goodness, truth in your life these days? Well, I'm going to be super self-promoting. Is that cool? Oh, good. That's what I'm Please. doing anyway. So even if it's not cool, Sorry. Just do it. Um, yeah. I, um, you know, I, I, you've been off Instagram, by the way. This is a good segue for this. You wrote a really, really good piece on Substack. Now I'm being Tish promoted. This is even more. Yeah, fun. you are. I was like, where um, are you going to this? <laughs> yeah. You wrote a really good piece on Substack about being off Instagram. And you shared the actual pros and cons. Mm-hmm. I don't think I've ever seen anybody share pros and cons. I think it was, it's all pretty much just been like, this is what you should do it too. And everything is roses now, or uh, this is why it sucks. And while I'll never do it again, I'm, I'm going to go back on Instagram. Um, but you actually share the pros and cons. I think you need to link to that in the show notes so everybody can read it because everyone needs all to right. read it. Um, okay. And I have taken an accidental break from hmm. Instagram. And the reason I did is because I did a series uh, maybe two months ago um, that was 27 photos with a 27 millimeter lens in downtown Fayetteville shot every photo with the exact same lens. And I posted a lot of those on Instagram, but not all of them. Okay. And um, so I created a little book called the observationalist and the observationalist is a book of my original photos and some writing uh, original writing that no one else will see Unless they get the observationalist. I am not going to put this on Instagram, the writing. I'm not going to share it with my Substack readers. The literal only way you can read this 
is if you buy the the observational list. Now, I'm going to say this too. It's not super cheap. There's a premium version where the photos are they're really nicely done and mm-hmm. it's, you know, $14 and change. And then there's a more of a zine version that's really thin and it's uh like 9 bucks and change. We'll leave mm-hmm. links in the show notes for those. Yeah. Um but I'm going to be really uh, straight and say it brings a lot of truth, beauty, and goodness to my life. And not because um, I have an ego the size of Hemingway, uh, but because I made a thing. I just yes. made a thing. And that made I me really it. happy to make a thing. I and love so that you I want to share that thing with everyone. I think it's so cool. I love when people still like one of my favorite things is watching people do their thing. Well, I don't know if that makes sense. I mean, you know, that totally. that's what you've been exploring and unpacking right now. Yes. And to me, this is your version of that. This is your hat making and your knife making, you know, this is your photo book. I love it. It's so cool. Yeah. yeah we'll definitely put a link in the show notes. Yeah. And this is actually my first exploration into that very thing that you just said as, as I've been talking to you a little bit about, and everyone um, who will listen a little bit about my exploration of craft, uh, I actually have some some sort of financial goals to like set that project up. That's a project that needs to happen, and this is like sort of stage in step one in figuring out exactly you know where this fits into to to that project. So I'm super excited yeah. about it. So that's yeah. super cool. I love it. I love it. So Tish, what is one thing bringing some beauty into your life? Well, I am reading a novel right now. If my subsub my Substack subscribers know this, I posted what I plan to read this summer and um it's a lot of big books, so I'm totally okay if I end up reading like one or two of them instead of like a whole bunch of little ones. But I got this because enough readers recommended it to me. Have you read The Pillars of the Earth by Ken Follett? I have not. I have not. Okay, it was written in the late 80s, so this isn't like exactly old. I mean, it's oldish, but not really. It's not old. Um, compared to the things we talked about in this chat. Um, It's a big, thick book. It's almost a thousand pages. And it is just an epic story about, it takes place in the 1100s, which is like an era I know nothing about. Um, (laughs) And it's about a guy who, he's a builder. And so he's talking about building a cathedral. And that sounds like it would be boring, but it is fascinating. It's fascinating just like what the... Middle Ages. Is that the Middle Ages? Medieval period? I don't know what where the lines are on that. Um, what the world was like at the time, what it was like to be a builder and find work and why, like he would turn down jobs and live on the brink of starvation in order to save up his energy and his time to build a cathedral. And just why beauty matters, I think, is at the heart of this book um, and why he would rather spend his whole life building like a window on a cathedral. Cause these things took hundreds of years to build, right? Like people died never having completed this work. Yeah, totally. Why he would rather do that than be able to point to 20 houses he built and say, this is my work. Aren't you impressed? He would rather mm. do that. So anyway, it's just unpacking what it's like to think that way. And there's all sorts of other characters. There's monks, there's, there's wenches, there's, you know, it's all the, the classic, <laughs> The classic people of that time period, but it's really fun. Like it's like when you listen to last week's drink episode with Joshua Gibbs, it's a common book. It's not an uncommon book, but common is still worth reading, right? If we always, if we always read and listened to uncommon things, we would just never want to create anything because everything we're going to create most likely is common, right? Um, So common is good. It's just avoid the mediocre, but 
enjoy common and uncommon things because they all have their place. So this is a common book, yeah. but it's still good and worth reading. So I'll put a link in the show notes. That's as awesome. Well. It makes me want to read it. Yeah. Yeah. It's really fun so far. Alrighty, guys. Um, it's time to wrap this one up. You can find this episode as well as all episodes at a drink with a friend.com. We also got a lot of show notes in this one. So find those links. Uh, let's see. You can support the show by picking up the next round of drinks. It's free for you to listen to, but not free for us to make. So at the cost of a cup of coffee or a pint, you can help us keep it going. Again, all this is at a drink with a friend.com and just in the show notes of this episode. You can find me and how to connect with me, especially my newsletter at tishoxenrider.com. Seth, how about you? Sethhaines.substack.com. All right. Music for the show is by Kevin McLeod. Editing is by Kyle Oxenrider. I'm Tish Oxenrider with Seth Haynes, and we'll be back here again with you soon. Thanks for listening. <laughs>